Good morning. How are we doing? Great, don't all answer at once. Um, so I'm Nick Pickerell. I'm the curator of The Open Table, uh, and I'm excited to be with you all today. Uh, so we are in the middle of a six-week series on the Reformation, where we've been exploring ways to understand and actually pick up and read this strange and wonderful 2,000-year-old book. This book that I'm holding is the Bible, <clears throat> in case you were wondering. And so far in the series, we've talked about how 500 years ago, uh, Martin Luther, his life was changed, right, by reading the scripture, translating it with students, and suddenly, here comes the Reformation. Jimmy talked about Israel's King Josiah and how Israel had lost track of the scrolls of the covenant, and suddenly they were found again. They read them, and Israel repented. Paul then talked about how these 66 books became our canon, right? And then last week, we talked about how we can interpret or use hermeneutic tools to better understand the words of this 2,000-year-old book. And I'm happy to report that today, we are going to be putting some of these tools to work. We're going to get the chance to apply a hermeneutic tool to a particular passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Are we excited about this? Yeah! yeah. I can hardly contain myself. This is going to be fantastic, right? So, but calm down. Before we dig into the passage, I want to briefly talk about something. So since we've been focusing on the Reformation all year this year, this 500th year of the Reformation, you've, I'm sure you've heard this phrase spoken a number of times, a people reformed always reforming. Yes? Have we heard this? Yes, we have. In this 500th year since the Reformation, it gives us the occasion to not only look back at where the church has been, but it also gives us a chance to look forward, right? To look at ways the church is being reformed now for the future, for the next 500 years. And the beautiful thing is that Second Presbyterian Church has looked to the future by planting the open table community. Now the open table, I'm, I'm the, I've been the curator of this, and Wendy, who is in the audience out there, raise your hand, Wendy, hello. She is the assistant curator. We've been uh, the folks making the open table go for the past two years, and we celebrate our two-year birthday in March, the beginning of March. So we're like, hey. And uh, <clears throat> yes, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. So we're a community of hospitality and conversation. We're a church that seeks to create a community of peace and reconciliation in a city divided. We gather together on second and fourth Sunday nights, rich and poor, black and white, gay and straight, young and old, around the dinner table. And around that dinner table, that is our communion. And we view it as our communion because when we sit down and share a meal with someone who we may not actually, uh, who may come from a different background than us, then suddenly those walls that kept us apart start to crumble a little bit. We've also hosted conversations on a number of topics, ranging from racism to meditation to addiction and mass incarceration. We actually recently hosted a peacemaking workshop where 150 folks came together from all over the city to learn de-escalation tactics and tools so they could be peacemakers in our city as we've seen an increase in racist and xenophobic attacks. We've been invited to speak at conferences like the Center for Progressive Renewal and 
here next month, the next church conference. We've received grant funding from Second Presbyterian Church, Heartland Presbytery, and 1001 New Worshiping Communities. And we've been able to increase the hours of our assistant curator, Wendy Brockhouse, to full-time. So needless to say, the open table has been busy. And we're really excited to see what 2017 holds in store for us and beyond. And I just wanted to extend a personal invitation to you all to say, hey, you are more than welcome to come to the open table, to join us some second and fourth Sunday night. We'd love to have you. And also, I just want to say thank you for all the support that you've given to us. As we, as the open table, venture into uncharted territory, as we try to figure out what the church looks like in 2017 and beyond. So thank you. Thank you. And actually, speaking of our peacemaking workshop, we're actually doing a second round of trainings uh, right here at Second Presbyterian Church on February 23rd. That's a Thursday. It'll be from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. in Westminster Hall. So if you want to try on some of these tools to be a peacemaker uh, in the everyday goings-on of our life, then feel free to join us. You are more than welcome. Okay, so let's dig in to our passage today. Let's grab our pew Bibles and turn to Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. This is the parable of the talents. Okay, let's listen as I read. Again, it is like a man who is leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one he gave five valuable coins, and to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I gained five more. His master replied, Excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. Now the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid, and I hid my valuable, valuable coin in the ground. Here, have what's yours. His master replied, you evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed? In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has 10 coins. Those who have much will receive more. And they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him outside into the darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. This is the word of the Lord. So, how many of you guys have heard this parable before? 
Yes, a lot of hands. Well, from those of you who have raised your hands, I'm sure there are uh, particular takeaways that you've had. And so what I'd love to do is just take a minute and hear from some of you, like what are those quick little takeaways, those quick little lessons that you've heard when uh, uh, this passage was preached on? Just shout it out. It's not fair. It's not fair. Life's not fair. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah. One of my abiding scriptures is to whom much is given, much is expected. To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Anything else? Did I hear somebody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's talents like singing and card playing. So make sure you use your talents. Yes, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, Sue. I think that might be a parable that Jesus for those who believe in Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So Sue just said that this is a passage that's probably used for proponents of the prosperity gospel, right? And so I, I think it's safe to say that we've established what a traditional reading of this parable is. It's a parable that says, uh, use your talents, <laughs> use your money for the Lord. Like if, if you get some, use it. And then conversely, uh, don't let your talents go to waste or you may be thrown out where there's weeping and grinding of teeth. That's pretty rough. <laughs> but uh, let's, let's take a step back for a moment. Let's, let's, uh, we'll come to this parable in just a second, but I wanna take just a moment and talk about 20th and 21st century America. So when we think about modern day American society, we think of things like opportunity, right? We think of freedom, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, justice. We have common mantras like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We have a particular worldview, right? That's made up of common attitudes towards wealth, poverty, work, play, the social order, political systems, economics, and all of these things exist largely in the background. We, we don't have to think about it. In fact, we don't often think about it. It's just the water that we swim in, right? Take economics, for instance. We live in a capitalist country, and we really love this graph. <laughs> this is a graph showing growth, progress, endless growth. We can always go up. Let's just keep on going up, right? Bigger, better, faster, stronger. That, that's, that, that's that graph. So if we apply it to products, if a product runs out, we typically think it's a supply issue, right? So what do we do? We wait a couple weeks, we place a, our order, and it's back-ordered, and then in a couple weeks, more will come out, and we'll get our product. Never do we generally think that, oh, once all this gets made, there physically cannot be any more to be made. There's, there's no more resources. The assumption is, is that there's always more resources out there, right? Now, I'm generalizing, of course, but you, you, you get the idea. I mean, take companies, for instance, like corporations. If a company is not on that trajectory, if they are flatlining, or if they're flatlining, that was the wrong word, if they're stagnant or shrinking, if they're flatlining, obviously that's another. What happens, right? <laughs> CEOs are out the door, employees are laid off, and new people are brought in to get us back on that trajectory, right? So that's just one example of how a particular attitude can make its way into all sorts of areas of our life. 
So 2,000 years from now, here's a question. 2,000 years from now, do we think it would be pretty important for anyone in the future who reads our literature, listens to our songs, watches our movies, do we think it's important for them to understand the water that we are swimming in? To understand the complexities of our day, to understand the context of our lives? Absolutely, (laughs) right? If people in the future don't have that, there's a pretty good chance that those people in the future will misunderstand us and our society today. And this kind of context is key if we hope to understand other cultures or eras. This kind of cultural exploration, when applied as a lens to viewing the scripture through, is actually called the historical cultural hermeneutic. And it basically just says that, hey, it's important for us to take into account the historical and cultural context of the day so that we can better understand stories like the one we just read. This tool is meant to help us understand the water that the first century people were swimming in. It helps us understand the complexities of their society and forms how we interpret texts like the parable of the talents. So during our Matthew 25 series that we had last year at the open table, we invited Dr. David May. Some of you may have heard him if you've ever been in the Witherspoon class. He's come a time or two. He is a professor of New Testament studies at Central Baptist Theological Seminary, and he came to the open table to set up our series for us. He came to give us some of that historical cultural context to help shed new light on Matthew 25. He unpacked some of the political and economic realities of first century Jerusalem, and guess what? We loved it. (laughs) It blew our minds. In fact, after David May came and spoke, there are a number of folks who came up to us and said, you know what? That was incredible. For the first time in a long time, I've actually wanted to pick up my Bible and reread the New Testament, which is great. That's a great thing. It's like the best feedback I could have ever had. And he also recommended a book. And so I want to make sure that I give you all a resource as we dig into this. The book is this. It's The New Testament World by Bruce Molina. And this book is an excellent resource for anyone wanting to better understand the historical and cultural context of the first century world. Okay, so make sure you got that down. New Testament world, Bruce Molina. So I'd like to share with you some of what David May spoke about at the open table. First, the first century world. It's a limited good society, unlike today, meaning that it was understood that there was a finite amount of resources that needed to be distributed amongst all the people fairly. So if someone had multiple coats and someone else had none, people from that time would have viewed it as stealing from the poor. Now, this society was also an honor-shame society, meaning that reputation, not wealth, not progress, reputation, honor, that was the thing that people were after. Now, it didn't mean you couldn't have money. There were plenty of people who were rich in those days. And what they would do, oftentimes, is they, they would give back in the form of music and art. And what did that result in? A greater reputation and greater honor. But here's the catch. If anyone were to amass a great amount of wealth outside of an act of God, like getting a good harvest because there was a lot of rain that season, that was viewed as a shameful act. Because in that day, that meant that you probably got rich by extracting it from the poor. And it's also important to note here that usury, or charging interest, was actually forbidden in many cases in the first century. 
Okay. <laughs> so how does all this new information potentially change our reading of that parable? So as we can see, when we apply our 21st century lens of growth, progress, investment, accumulation, the parable says it's good to invest and put our money, our talents to work, right? But when we look at this parable through the first century limited good society lens, suddenly a new story begins to emerge and it flips the parable on its head. Suddenly the first two servants who doubled their money suddenly start to look like they may have been in the wrong and the servant who buried the coin in the ground suddenly becomes this story's anti-hero. But wait, there's more. It gets even better if that's not enough for you. We often read this parable with the master being representative of God. But let's look at the description given of the master. The master is described as being, what, a hard man, harvesting grain where he hasn't sown, gathering crops where he hasn't spread seed. It also says in the last two verses of the parable that the master takes what little bit the servant has and throws him out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we have to ask ourselves, does this sound like the God of the New Testament who regularly welcomed the poor? Does this sound like the God who cried out and actually toppled whole regimes who practiced the exact same kind of exploitation that's talked about in this parable? Or could it just be that this master is actually just that, a first century wealthy landowner? Now, if you're looking at it through this lens, I imagine to the listeners of the first century, the message of this parable was clear. I'm sure that there were a lot of affirmative nods going, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about, Jesus. If we push against the systems of power, obviously we're going to get thrown out, left for dead. That's exactly what's going to happen. If we don't go along with those who have more power than us, that's just the way it is. Preach it, Jesus. But Jesus keeps going, right? He then goes on to the parable of the sheep and goats. And this parable is actually a reason to celebrate because Jesus here lets the listeners know that their salvation isn't going to be found in that system of exploitation. In fact, it's going to be found in the exact opposite place with him and his kingdom. Salvation is found, Jesus says, when we care for the hungry, the thirsty, the immigrant, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. Jesus offers his listeners and us another way, a counter-narrative, right? Another worldview, a worldview that competes with Rome. A worldview that is complete with its own set of politics, its own economic system, and its own social order. But Jesus, through the parable of talents, lets folks know the potential cost of following him. And what do we see later in the story, right? We, we see the very same thing that's laid out in the parable of the talents happen to Jesus. Because what does he do? Jesus goes to the temple. He flips over some tables because he's upset with the economic injustice that's happening there. And what happens to him? He gets thrown out. He doesn't just get thrown out. He gets executed for pushing back against the powers that be, just like the servant who buried his coin in the ground. <laughs> that was it for me. I was done. As soon as David did that, I was like, I need, I need like a week. <laughs> but it gives you something to think about, right? Dr. David May, when, when speaking about parables, he has this really great quote. He says, if myths help us sleep at night, 
Parables. Parables keep us awake. If myths help us sleep at night, parables keep us awake. So through our little exercise in hermeneutics today, we introduced just a little bit of context about the first century world. And what did it do? It completely transformed the parable, giving it a subversive edge, right? And that subversive edge, that kind of thing leaves us thinking for days. It's the kind of thing that can keep us up at night, right? In this instance, we're left grappling with both the cost and the benefit of following Jesus. And myths, myths are neat and tidy, right? They can be reassuring, they can be comforting. Parables, though. Parables generally make us question the very myths that we've believed in for so long. And parables force us to choose, right? To either continue believing in the nice and tidy myth or to step into, to lean into the unknown and invite change into our lives, which can be messy and hard. And it oftentimes comes at a cost. There's a Nigerian woman, she's a novelist named Chimamanda Adichie, and she did a TED Talk back in 2009 called The Danger of the Single Story. And in it, she, of course, talks about the dangers of the single story, those single, neat and tidy ways of looking at whole groups of people. She spoke about how the writings of people like Jean Locke and Rudyard Kipling contributed to the single story of Africans, right? It painted Africans as being negative, something negative. Uh, they were evil. They were, they were beasts. That was the single story. She spoke about an American friend who had a single story about Africa, and this friend asked her if she could play for her some of, some of the traditional African music. And this friend of Chimamanda was immediately disappointed when she produced a Mariah Carey tape. <laughs> There's a single story that just broke down. You expect tribal music, you get Mariah Carey. Fantastic voice. But then, but then she shared this. Mexico from the US. The political climate in the US at the time was tense, and there were debates going on about immigration. And, as often happens in America, immigration became synonymous with Mexicans. There were endless stories of Mexicans as people who were fleecing the healthcare system, sneaking across the border, being arrested at the border, that sort of thing. I remember walking around on my first day in Guadalajara, watching the people going to work, rolling up to tears in the marketplace, smoking, laughing, I remember first feeling slight surprise, and then I was overwhelmed with shame. I realized that I had been so immersed in the media coverage of Mexicans that they had become one thing in my mind, the abject immigrant. I had bought into the single story of Mexicans, and I could not have been more ashamed of myself. So that is how to create a single story, show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. That last line, huh? The way to create a single story is to show people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. So I think all of us fall into this trap, right? We're all susceptible to believing the single story of 
only having one way of viewing things. We can get locked into one interpretation of a text or one judgment of an entire group of people. And this leads to what? Misunderstanding, hate, division, separation. When I first moved to the historic Northeast neighborhood of Kansas City back in 2008, I remember riding my bike. I did it often to go get groceries downtown at Costantino's Market. And on one particular occasion, there is a group of young black men who were walking on the sidewalk, just chatting, laughing, walking and talking, <laughs> being normal people. And I noticed that as I got close on my bicycle to this group of young black men, my heart started to pound. I realized I was experiencing a lot of fear and anxiety. And I was immediately filled with shame, much like Chimamanda. And I was filled with shame because I realized that I had just fell victim to the single story. I fell victim to the single story that says young black men in groups are something to be feared, are something to be afraid of, because they are violent. And I realized that there are many things that contributed to this single story. So today we looked at a parable. A parable that oftentimes gets interpreted one way. But what did we do? Did we give up? Did we shut the book and say, I'm good. Let's move on. No, we dug deeper. We tried to understand the context of what was happening at the time that these words were spoken. And what happened? The meaning of the parable changed. When I had that experience in the Northeast, I could have just chosen to continue to believe the single story about the young black men that I had. But instead, I got the chance to get to know them and they got the chance to get to know me. I got to learn about their world, their context. I got the chance to do a lot of digging into my own biases and uncovering what was behind that single story. And you know what? My single story turned out to be completely wrong. And not only was it wrong, it was unfair to those people. Completely unfair. So what single story do you have that needs to be examined? that needs to be looked at again. What single story needs that hermeneutic touch? What group of people have you predetermined to be a certain way and are unwilling to allow them to be anything else? What group of people do you have a negative perception of that when you think about it, you really don't know anything about them, personally? Just like reading the Bible through the historical cultural lens opens up new possibilities and a new depth, getting to know those people we have a single story about opens up new possibilities for richness, reconciliation, and friendship. So then we're faced with a question, which will we choose? Will we choose our myths, our single stories that are nice and tidy, make it easy to sleep at night, allows us to keep ourselves at a safe distance? Or will we choose the parables? Will we choose to break apart our single stories, even though the process of doing so may keep us awake at night, even though it's messy? But will we do it because we know that life is found there in the parables? So uh, at the end of each pew, you'll notice that there's some blank notebook paper. As our next hymn plays, I want us to do something together. I want us just to take a moment and reflect and maybe journal a little bit. I want us to reflect on any group that we have a single story about. Just pick one. 
I want us to think about any group that we have judged and distanced ourselves from. And what I want us to do is I want us to take a moment to write down maybe the name of that group that we have a single story about, and I want us to begin to unpack it. Maybe you know someone personally who you have a single story about, and you uh, just need to write about that. Maybe you want to read some books that'll help you understand the group of people you have a single story about. Maybe you just need to write down your thoughts and feelings as a lament. Any of these things are fine. And you know what? I'll even help you out. Right here is a list of labels we often give to people. These are groups of people that oftentimes have a single story, depending on where you identify. I'm going to leave these up on the screen during our our next hymn, and I hope that this can help spark our imagination. So this next hymn is called Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. And I want you to know that by doing the hard work of trying to understand the other in our lives, by doing the hard work of undoing the single story we have, there's good news. By doing so, we end up unlocking a richness and depth that we never knew was there. And we end up becoming the answer to the prayer that has been put to song. Make me a channel of your peace. Amen. Amen.